0: Before we jump into this week's episode, I have a few exciting announcements. We'll be taking the AJC Passport show on the road as we head to Jerusalem for the AJC Global Forum 2018. Today's episode, featuring two important conversations about what Congress is doing to combat anti-Semitism and about the problem one Presbyterian group seems to have with Israel, is brand new, hot off the presses. Next week, we'll bring you a never-before-heard conversation with acclaimed Israeli author and intellectual Yossi Klein-Halevi about his new book, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor. The following two weeks will feature special episodes recorded in front of a live audience at the AJC Global Forum. If you're not one of the over 2,000 people who are joining us in Jerusalem, or even if you are, those episodes are can't miss. With that, let's jump in to this week's episode.
1: Can one fairly criticize Israel? Absolutely. Israel is a democracy, it can take care of itself. But you cannot harass people, and you cannot intimidate people, and you cannot incite violence against people.
0: Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. What do you think about when you think of anti-Semitism? For most American Jews, anti-Semitism is a thing of the past. You might imagine a scene from Nazi Germany or something from Tsarist Russia or the Middle East and North Africa. But anti-Semitism isn't just a distant memory. It's alive today. What is the U.S. doing to combat rising anti-Semitism in places like Europe and Latin America? And what can we do to protect Jewish students on American college campuses where criticism of Israel can be widespread and can sometimes cross the line into anti-Semitism? Joining us now to talk about what the administration and Congress are doing to help fight anti-Semitism is AJC Associate Executive Director for Policy, Jason Isaacson, who has spent the last quarter century advocating on Capitol Hill and in capitals around the globe on behalf of the Jewish people. Jason, welcome back to AJC Passport. Thank you, Sethi. Let's talk first about the special envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism position at the State Department. Uh, 120 members of Congress just signed a bipartisan letter calling on our new Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, to fill the position. Uh, We actually had... Ira Foreman, who was the last person in this position on uh, AJC Passport a few months ago. But for those who don't know, what is this position and why is it important that it be filled?
1: Well, thank you, Sethi. Um, It is important. Uh, This is a position that was created originally um, by an act of Congress in 2004 uh, to address what at that time was a concern about Rising global anti Semitism. That was 14 years ago, and there has been a sharp increase, certainly in recent years, uh, that we've seen in violent attacks against Jews, uh, against Jewish institutions, um, especially in Europe, um, especially in France, where we've seen uh, a dozen murders of Jews uh, in the last 15 years, uh, specifically because they are Jews, uh, clear anti Semitic intent. The idea of creating a um, at the office in the State Department to monitor and combat anti-Semitism was to exert American leadership in this effort to combat global anti-Semitism, and to use the good offices of the United States government, the embassies abroad, and the mechanisms that exist in Washington to focus international attention on this, to focus, focus the attention of governments on the need to create Mechanisms within their own countries, uh, a special coordinator, um, uh, new legislation, new regulations to give the police uh, instructions on how to uh, determine that uh, anti-Semitic crimes are occurring and prosecute them appropriately. Um, this is, in, in a way, kind of building on the various hate crime statutes that we have in the United States and in a number of states. Um, but it it was a, a tool to allow the United States to use its reputation and its representation abroad to uh, strengthen this fight against global anti-Semitism. And it has been effective over the years. Um, But, of course, we've seen over the last 16 months the United States stepping away from this role. It was very good to see Secretary of State Pompeo just days ago Uh, assert in testimony in in Congress that he would promptly move to appoint this position. This is something that AJC has been championing really for a long time, especially over the last uh, more than a year that we have waited for this position to be filled.
0: Just from the perspective of the devil's advocate, just for a moment, I've heard people make the case that when there's a special envoy for something, it's that person's problem and no one else feels compelled to worry about it. So, you know, why would our ambassador to France, not to pick on our ambassador to France, why would our ambassador to France worry about um, what America could do about uh, rising anti-Semitism in France when um, you know, they can just kick it over to the special envoy? Do you have any sense from your context in the State Department that that's the reality of things, that, that if there's a special envoy, you know, that, that kind of silo is something that other people can, can ignore?
1: Well, it's certainly an argument that I've heard, and it doesn't apply only to the Special Envoy uh, for for this purpose, um, the Special envoy Envoy to Combat. Uh, to monitor and combat anti-Semitism, but it refers to other special envoys. There are dozens of special envoy positions that have been created in the State Department for a variety of purposes. So there are people, certainly foreign service officers and others who have experience in the government, who say, yes, that, that you do sort of silo this, and it, it, it takes the responsibility away from other 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 offices and, and embassies abroad. But in reality, that's not what's happened with this position. What's happened really with this position, and you heard this, I'm sure, from Ira Foreman when he spoke on HAC Passport, and you've perhaps heard this from others as well, who have had this position over the last more than a decade. In fact, they focus American attention. They focus the attention of our embassies abroad. They focus the attention of Congress. They report to Congress. And and it just is a way for the United States to uh, assume its natural role as a leader on on this human rights issue. So uh, perhaps this is an argument that is made by people who want kind of, the uh, you know, clearest possible organizational lines. And it doesn't make sense to have these special roles. But, but in fact, in this particular case, what we have seen through the experience of the last 14 years, taking away the last year when we haven't had the position filled, is that it has been successful in, in, in corralling, in, in organizing the work of the United States government through all the various offices, through the embassies abroad and through the work of, of Congress and, and especially of the State Department uh, here in Washington.
0: Jason, we're now almost a year and a half into uh, the Trump administration. The position is important, as you say. Why hasn't it been filled already?
1: I think there are a variety of reasons. I think um, there has been focus on other issues, uh, certainly by the department, uh, by by the administration. Um, There has been an issue with vetting individuals who are in line for certain positions. So the whole kind of appointment process has been slower, I'd say far slower than usual. There are still dozens of important ambassadorial posts that have not been filled. They, uh, people haven't been designated. They haven't been formally nominated. Uh, the Senate hasn't had a chance to work on confirmation. So the whole process has really slowed down. Uh, Special envoy is one of many jobs that hasn't been filled. Um, why is that uh, an anti-establishment notion, perhaps? Uh, uh, uncertainty that it was necessary to have The special envoy posts filled, perhaps some internal uh, questions within the State Department uh, under uh, former Secretary uh, Tillerson and and now under Pompeo. I think there was increasing awareness that there was a real constituency for this job. And uh, while all special envoys, I'm sure, have various constituencies, this one has one that that speaks clearly uh, based on facts and based on experience and based on a growing threat. And so I, I think it's taken them a long time, but, but finally it looks as though the administration is is positioning itself to, uh, to, to move forward on appointing someone. But, but, but this is not the only job that hasn't been filled that should have been filled, uh, and we're looking forward to different kind of pace of appointments under Secretary Pompeo, who seems determined to, to really fill out the, uh, the, the, the positions that have not been filled yet at the State Department.
0: Well, so let me ask, just as a thought exercise, you oversee all of AJC's diplomatic work, but a lot of the diplomatic work that you handle personally takes place in the Arab world, in in North Africa and and the Middle East. Do you think it's more important for us to have a special envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism or more important to have an ambassador in Cairo?
1: Uh, which would you rather die of, uh, starvation or uh, freezing? <laughs> I mean, look, uh, Sethi, <laughs> I, I think they're I think they're both important. I think that, uh, that clearly we have to have boots on the ground, diplomatic boots on the ground. We have plenty of boots on the ground elsewhere. We need to have diplomatic boots on the ground around the world, and and those jobs haven't sufficiently been filled. We're starting to make some progress on that. That's good news. We need more of it quickly. Um, we also need. Uh, special to, specialists, uh, the experts who focus on particular issues, such as the growing threat of anti-Semitism. So uh, I think it really needs to be a combination. I, 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 would, I, I would like to believe that we have a government that can, can do both of these things at the same time.
0: And you're optimistic, it sounds, that uh, that that our major vacancies will be filled shortly.
1: Look, I have to say that Secretary Tillerson also indicated that he was planning to move forward with uh, an appointment, and it didn't happen. But um, we all know about the tensions and and disconnect between the State Department uh, when he was the secretary and and the White House. A very different kind of relationship appears to uh, to, to be the case now between Secretary Pompeo and the President. Uh, the fact that the secretary. Came to Capitol Hill just days ago and committed to moving uh, quickly on appointing a special envoy, is a very good sign, and we're expecting that appointment to be made.
0: Let's switch gears. Uh, recently, Democrats and Republicans in Congress introduced the Anti-Semitism Awareness Act. Um, they introduced it in the House. What is the bill, and why do we need it?
1: Well. The bill addresses um, anti-Semitism, you know, here at home, not not overseas, as the as, as the other issue that we were just just uh, discussing. Um, it's it's a bill that would provide a definition for the purpose of. Um, examination, of monitoring, of, of uh, perhaps uh, government action on anti-Semitism, on, on, on discrimination uh, based on anti-Semitism on college campuses and other school campuses ac- across the country. There is in uh, Title Six of the Civil Rights Act of uh, 1964, I believe, um, a, um, a provision for um, dis- combating discrimination that exists in, in campuses, but although there is a, uh, a listing of the kinds of discrimination of religious and and gender and other discrimination, um, there isn't a definition provided for anti-Semitism. So, although, uh, so uh, while there have been instances that are as plain as the eye can see of, of anti-Semitic um, uh, speech that Is actually uh, incites violence that actually um, intimidates, that actually harasses uh, Jews on campuses um, because um, college administrators have not felt that they knew exactly how to define what they were seeing and whether it applied to the anti-discrimination statutes uh, in the United States. Uh, A lot of these instances have just passed uh, and and have, have resulted in a uh, kind of a sour and really hostile atmosphere on campuses. This this is an attempt to clarify the framework, to cl- clarify the legal f- framework. It doesn't impose a new... Um, uh, inhibition or restriction on speech. It simply provides a definition for what is anti-Semitism when one sees anti-Semitic harassment or anti-Semitic violence or incitement to violence on campuses. And and so it's for want of a definition that a lot of these instances have gone um, really unaddressed. And it's time to change that. In in light of what we have seen on campuses across the country, where you see. Uh, demonstrations that uh, perhaps protest Israeli actions, but have a, a, a really insidious anti-Semitic uh, intent that is is as plain as you can see. And if you can't provide administrators with a definition of what it is that they're seeing that it actually meets a certain definition, it's going to be difficult to prevent that kind of activity and, and provide protection for, 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 for this vulnerable community of, of, uh, of Jewish students who may be harassed, intimidated, uh, perhaps even the victims of violence on, on campuses.
0: AJC supports the bill, but there are others who are critical. You know, the the ACLU, for example, says that it stifles legitimate criticism of Israel. Uh, obviously, it's not our intention um, to do anything to to dampen uh, free speech, but could this bill incidentally lead to that?
1: That is the criticism. I don't believe it's founded. I believe that um, that. In fact, you can still have a, a rally on a college campus and, uh, and express yourself. What you cannot do is you cannot harass people. Um, you cannot intimidate people. You cannot uh, commit or threaten violence against people. Um, but it doesn't inhibit one from speaking one's mind. Um, it doesn't inhibit academic freedom. It doesn't inhibit freedom of speech. So I know that that's the argument that's been made Um uh, but but I haven't heard that argument made about other forms of discrimination uh, where people have tried to be quite specific about what is or is not a, a, a form of intimidating discrimination against uh, various protected groups. Um, there, there's no reason to apply a special standard when it comes to anti-Semitism. So I, 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 I've heard the criticism. We respect freedom of speech. This bill does not inhibit uh, and, and were it to become law would not would not in any way restrict uh, freedom of speech.
0: Anti-Semitism is is so difficult to define, of course, because you and I, and, and AJC for that matter, would say that there is criticism of Israel that happens in the world that is clearly motivated by anti-Semitism. You know, if you're talking about anti-black racism or you're talking about homophobia, there is no, you know, state of the LGBTQ population, right? Whereas there is a Jewish state out in the world that has a polity that takes actions uh, in the world that have real-world consequences, um, and so it's uh, it's a, it's a very challenging thing. Do you, do you think there's any benefit to severing um, you know Israel out from the from the question of what is anti-Semitic, or do you think it's important to uh, to keep it in?
1: I think it's important to keep it in, um, but again, to keep it in as a guideline. Um, you know, it's not as though you couldn't stand up on a college campus and say. Um, you know, Israel oppresses the Palestinian people, or say something else about how perhaps the U.S. shouldn't be supportive of Israel as 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 a right to speak on a college campus. Um, of course, one can say that, um, but but you know where the lines are. You know that uh, when you start standing up and saying and and using uh, uh, Nazi insignia and uh, and and talking about um, Jews in a in a not only a derogatory way but but really a a, a, a way that that is that is true harassment um, and and denigrates in a way that actually could incite violence, it crosses a line. Um, so it, this is an issue, um Steffi, that has been Poured over by legal scholars and a variety of, uh, of, of, of activists, including especially those of us in AJC, uh, including colleagues of, of, of ours who, who worked on actual uh, the, the creation of the actual uh, language that, that went into the working definition of anti-Semitism that's now been adopted by the European Parliament and by, by a variety of other bodies. Um, we have been working on this issue for some time, but there are lines that you can draw, um, and there are distinctions that can be made and have to be made. Yes, can one fairly... Um, criticize Israel? Absolutely. Um, Israel is a democracy. It can take care of itself. Uh, but, but, but you cannot harass people and you cannot intimidate people and you cannot incite violence against people. Uh, and that goes against Jews and it goes against people who have disabilities and it goes against uh, the LGBTQ community and it goes against every possible group. Uh, there have to be lines that can be drawn. This is, this is one area in which the definition has been lacking. This bill actually provides that definition.
0: Last question. Usually, we we often hear the metaphor of a marketplace of ideas used when we talk about the university campus. Isn't there value to letting these kinds of anti-Israel ideas maybe even anti-Semitic ideas into the marketplace to be rejected by people. You know, perhaps it's better for these uh, thoughts, these concepts that we might find abhorrent to be given voice so that people can realize just how much they are repulsed by them.
1: Uh, look, it's a good point, uh, and 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 one can say that the, yes, the best uh, you know disinfectant is is the truth, and and if one hears a lie, that one can counter it. Uh, this this bill, um, were to become law, would not prevent people from from hating Jews without people stop people from from hating Israel or expressing themselves on that topic. What it does stop is harassment and it does stop violence and it does stop incitement to violence and I'm not worried about the marketplace of ideas being in any way affected by this. You will still have people who are totally free to stand up and express whatever crazy or brilliant idea they may have on a college campus. That is the whole purpose of college campuses uh, is to have these ideas threshed out and flushed out and, and, and 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 the truth, theoretically, will out from that process. This doesn't affect that at all. This just simply says if you use that platform to intimidate, to harass, to incite violence— there will be repercussions. Uh, There will be the Department of Education can send a letter. It can be in touch with uh, the university, can perhaps uh, affect the funding that the university receives from the federal government. It's it's a logical progression that if you see violence or harassment occurring uh, against any community, against any group, there should be repercussions. And that's simply what this bill does. It doesn't affect speech. It affects harassment.
0: Jason, it's always a pleasure to have you.
1: Thank you, Sethi, and for me as well.
0: Their upcoming conference will feature eight resolutions against Israel. They've published an educational text called Zionism Unsettled, which distorts Jewish and Israeli history. They seem to fixate on the Jewish state year after year. Sounds like the worst kind of Israel bashers, right? Unfortunately, I've just described the biennial General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian umbrella group in the United States. Despite years of interfaith work on the part of AJC and others in the Jewish community, the relationship with this group, PCUSA, has deteriorated, and anti-Israel activists in search of a platform seem to have hijacked their annual General Assembly. This year, For the first time in recent memory, AJC will not be sending a representative to this event. Here to talk with us about what's happening in the Presbyterian Church and AJC's decision is Emily Soloff, AJC National Associate Director for Interreligious and Intergroup Relations. Emily, welcome to AJC Passport. Thank you. Let's dive right in what is the Presbyterian General Assembly? Is it representative of all Presbyterians? And why should anyone who isn't a Presbyterian care about it?
2: So the Presbyterian, first of all, we're talking specifically about the Presbyterian Church USA, which is sometimes referred to as PCUSA. It's the largest Presbyterian denomination in the U.S. It's not the only denomination. It's the most liberal denomination. And it's the denomination that when most people think of Presbyterian churches, like Fourth Presbyterian Church, um, that is the PCUSA Church. The General Assembly is a biannual meeting of all of the different presbyteries around the country, each of them sends delegates, and Presbyterian Church is a very democratic in governance. They have They don't have bishops, They have executive presbyters who are largely administrative, and um, so their general assembly is in some ways like the American Congress. The presbyterians are very much of an American denomination, and the churches, individual churches, can suggest overtures, what we would call resolutions, and bring them up to this national meeting where they are discussed and they're voted on. And why should anybody care? Because these overtures um, provide some direction for the way the church, as a corporate body in the in the in America, is going to be function, functioning. And they have many overtures regarding civic issues that are of concern to people, uh, overtures on racism, for example, possibly on gun violence. Um, we as a Jewish community are concerned about it because they have overtures having that, that deal with the Israel-Palestine-Palestinian conflict and make statements about that conflict that we need to pay attention to.
0: And what has the state of relations been in recent years between Presbyterians and Jews?
2: The uh, relationship between Presbyterians and Jews on the local level, in the various communities, are, are pretty good. They have not been quite so positive on the national level, uh, starting with a decline, I think, in 2004, when the first of a series of uh, resolutions on boycott and divestment Came to the National Church, and were voted on by the National tr- by the at this at this General Assembly, uh, which caught the Jewish community a little bit unawares. Uh, our relationship up until that point with the ecumenical and interfaith relations officers of the Church and the National Church had been very positive, and we weren't anticipating or expecting something like a divestment resolution that came before the church. Uh, The Jewish community was caught off guard. And we learned from that experience that our contacts, our interfaith, interreligious, inter-ecumenical officers that we met with who were our friends, uh, were not responsible for these uh, divestment resolutions, they were coming out of other parts of the church. They were coming out of the peace and justice camp of the church. And these two departments, if you will, in the church didn't necessarily have relationships with each other. The peace and justice folks had were international, had relations with Palestinians uh, and not necessarily with Israelis. And so The resolutions caught the ecumenical and interfaith people as much off guard as it caught us. But it also underscored or revealed, kind of tore the Band-Aid off, if you will, uh, a sore in the relationship between Jews and Presbyterians, which has festered on the national level um, and gotten increasingly difficult in the last uh, uh, 12 years, 12, 14 years.
0: I'm trying to get a sense of of scale here, Emily. First of all, how big is PCUSA? And second, you know, you talk about these two different kind of silos within the church. How much of PCUSA feels this way? Would you say that these anti-Israel resolutions are representative of the majority of Presbyterians?
2: No, let me take that first. Um, They are not representative of most Presbyterians. They emanate out of a small corner of the church, which is very ideologically oriented. Uh, It's a corner of the church which has Palestinian Presbyterians in it, uh, or um, Presbyterians who come from the Middle East, or Presbyterians who worked in the Middle East in a number of the institutions that Presbyterians have. But before I go further on that, Sepi, let me talk about the size of the denomination. The Presbyterian Church has declined, um, I would say, uh, I think they would say, rather precipitously in the last number of years. And for a denomination that boasted uh, several million adherents, um, they're down to about a million and a half adherents in America. Um, So that begs the question of why are they important? Because Presbyterians are uh, part of the fabric of America and American culture. There are many Presbyterians who were uh, presidents, who were senators, who are congressmen. Uh, the Presbyterian Church was a significant and important church in the civic life of America for many, many years, and maybe in terms of numbers, they're coasting, but um, we as a Jewish community that doesn't number... That numbers under uh, 12 million or 10 million, depending on, or 6 million, depending on who you talk to, uh, cannot uh, point fingers at somebody else's declining numbers and say, (laughs) "Oh, um, good for you." So uh, it's not it's not largely a numbers game. The the influence of the Presbyterians on this um, in this area of anti-Israel resolutions is significant because they tend to take the lead and where they go, others follow. And we have seen this very consistently in the last um, eight or nine years where the Presbyterians will come out with a resolution at their General Assembly and lo and behold, a very similar, if not identical, resolution will appear at the Methodist um, General Conference or at the Episcopalian General Convention. And so the Presbyterians have influence beyond their numbers.
0: So AJC has made the decision now to not attend the PCUSA General Assembly. Are we boycotting the Presbyterians? And whether we are or we aren't, we're taking some action. What kind of change are we hoping to inspire through that action?
2: I wouldn't call it a boycott. Uh Noam Marens, Rabbi Noam Marens, the director of uh, interreligious um, and intergroup relations for AJC, did write a, an op-ed, uh, which was published in the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, uh, explaining why we weren't going, explaining that we weren't going and why we weren't going. And uh, not to directly quote Noam, but uh, in, in terms of the, the tenor of his uh, op-ed was, we have seen these general assemblies uh, become less and less uh, relevant in terms of trying to be um, avatars for peace. The Presbyterian Church, um, in a lot of their generalized statements about the, the... Israel-Palestinian conflict talk about wanting to be peacemakers. They, the, the nature of the overtures of these resolutions is so strident, so negative, and so one-sided that it, it begs any possibility of being uh, promoting a, a peaceful outlook. They have allied themselves with Jewish Voice for Peace, and um, one of one of the things that was determining was determining for us this year was the number and the the viciousness, if you will, of the resolutions that came before that are coming before the General Assembly, which is meeting in St. Louis um, in a couple of weeks. What one of these resolutions claims to be about Christian-Jewish dialogue. And it calls on... It, it, the, these resolutions have recommendations and then they have rationales. I want to read you the rationale of this one particular uh, overture. It purports to describe Jewish leadership and to describe how Jews really think which violates every good practice of dialogue. In, in good dialogue, you let the other person describe themselves and speak for themselves. You don't tell them who they are and what they think. And this overture attempts to do that in ways that are unrecognizable to me as a Jewish professional, as a Jewish woman in America. It claims that the Jewish leadership privately acknowledges that occupation is apartheid, that it's systematic ethnic cleansing, that it's unsustainable as colonization, and that a Jewish state is incompatible with democracy. Further, it claims that we (laughs) Jewish leaders acknowledge that Zionism is based on racism and is not equivalent to Judaism. When I read this my heart sank, because this becomes, in its own way, a public document. And this speaks volumes about what some, not all, but some Presbyterians think of their neighbors who are American Jews. And it's it's just, it's untenable. It's, it's not it's not possible to go to this meeting where something like this is going to be discussed and debated and by some Presbyterians promoted.
0: Emily, so no contest from me that that is abhorrent. I think that that there are a lot of problems that it sounds like the Presbyterians need to address. But, you know. If I may, isn't this crazy, right? AJC as an organization prides itself on engagement, on building bridges, on forming ties. We're just giving up and not going. We're not making our voice heard. You know, it feels out of step with with how we work. You know, we're we're exercising the nuclear option. I'm sure there must have been you know major conversations within your office on 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 determining to do this. Can you let us see behind the curtain?
2: The, well, it's I, I wouldn't use the term nuclear op- option, Sefi, because um, th- this is one meeting. This is a general meeting. Um, you know, a lot of organizations, including Jewish organizations, have uh, meetings and people go or they don't go. It is true what you say is true that by not going, uh, we don't um, we don't have a place at the table. And when you don't go to a meeting, people. Tend not to notice that you're not there. Uh, when you are there, people may or may not notice that you're there. But when you're when you're <laughs> no, nobody's nobody's going to look around the room and say, "Oh, the HAC isn't here this year." Uh, there are 800 delegates who have, by the way, a thousand pages of documents uh, and nine and a half days to go over them and make decisions and vote on them. But the uh, last at the last uh, General Assembly, um, the the depth of um, how can I say this the 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 efforts the one sidedness of the discussions in the Middle East Committee um, the repeated efforts to obscure what could be considered. Um, truth or at least fairness, the the intense bias through the management of what was shown and when it was shown and what was discussed and when it was discussed showed that the process um, for which Presbyterians are very proud, that the process has become really quite broken. And our being there serves really no purpose except to allow those who are very ideologically opposed to Israel to say well you know we, we the AJC was there we heard from them so we gave everybody a fair chance
0: mm, but it's yeah. not
2: the system is really they've rigged it it's rigged
0: right right yeah yeah, that puts us in a, in a difficult place, of course. Uh, you know, the the last question I have for you, Emily, is you mentioned that our colleague, I Noah Marins, recently wrote an op-ed explaining these issues that we have with uh, PCUSA's General Assembly. Uh, have we heard uh, reactions from Presbyterians to it? And do we have any reason to expect that things are going to get better?
2: Well, Steffi, we're the HAC, We're the
0: optimistic organization. So, <laughs> of course, we expect
2: things are going to get better. <laughs> The, um, there has been some reaction. Uh, some of our um, some of our colleagues in the Presbyterian Church have said that they uh, were pained by the um, uh, decision and by the op-ed, but that they understood it and they um, thought, as one Presbyterian said, that we nailed it in um, the way that uh, that uh, Noam described it. Um, other Presbyterians have been hurt by it, um, and wish that we would not abandon ship. But I want to make the point here that we are not abandoning Presbyterians. We are not going to the General Assembly, but we are still engaged with Presbyterians on the local level. And our 22 regional offices have Uh, relations with Presbyterians. Um, Some of them have very active dialogue. Some of them are engaged in different projects. Um, We had, we, on our letter to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, asking him to please appoint a special envoy on anti-Semitism, we had 11, more than 1,100 religious leaders sign that letter. Many of them were Presbyterians, and many of them were prominent Presbyterians in their community. So we are not abandoning Presbyterians, and we don't think that they are abandoning us. But there is in their church a cadre of people who are determined to an outlook regarding Israel that is just not acceptable and not possible for us to be associated with in any way, shape, or form.
0: Emily, thank you so much for joining us and for helping us to understand this complex situation.
2: Thank you, Sefi.
0: Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Disney. Good for the Jews? Yes, Walt Disney was an anti-Semite. But we're not talking about Walt, who has been dead for over 50 years. We're talking about the decision by ABC Network, owned by Disney, to cancel Roseanne, despite the show's commercial success, after the comedian behind the rebooted sitcom Roseanne Barr engaged in a racist and anti-Semitic rant on Twitter this week. Most of the headlines focused on Roseanne comparing Obama advisor Valerie Jarrett to an ape, which drew from a long history of racists comparing black people to monkeys. Less noted was when Roseanne tweeted that George Soros, a Hungarian Jewish Holocaust survivor, was a Nazi. Soros may be a polarizing figure, politically, but Roseanne's use of Holocaust inversion was shameful and regretfully right in line with the abhorrent sense of humor she has demonstrated over the years. Kudos to ABC for refusing to play host to her hate. Their decision is good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org Passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Alex Zeldin. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.